Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr John Cunningham, a Government of Ireland CARA postdoctoral fellow in the Humanities and Social Sciences at Trinity College Dublin and the University of Freiburg. His current research is concerned with the Stuart and Habsburg monarchies in the 17th century and, more particularly, with a comparative study of the post-war settlements implemented in Bohemia after 1620 and in Ireland after 1652. His paper is entitled Bohemia and Ireland in the 17th Century, Comparable Histories. I want to begin by thanking the organisers for allowing me to speak and also the IRCHSS for uh, receipt of funding. Um, since uh, my fellowship commenced last October, I've been based in Freiburg working on a project entitled Crisis, Conflict and Change in 17th Century Ireland and Bohemia. The initial impetus for that project came from the point sometimes expressed by Irish historians in recent decades that the events which occurred in Ireland post-1649 and in Bohemia post-1618 might perhaps form an appropriate subject for comparative historical study. I have not yet come across any recent Czech historians expressing the like sentiment. Um, The apparent parallels appeared strongest to Irish and Czech nationalist writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries, who saw their respective countries as engaged in the like enterprise of escape from foreign and imperial domination. Following a visit to Bohemia in 1907, the newspaper proprietor Richard J. Kelly reported that, quote, the similarity between the two countries is wonderful. As was often said to me, Ireland is the Bohemia of the West and Bohemia is the Ireland of the East, unquote. It is, of course, necessary to avoid the adoption of such a simplified view while also accepting the possibility that the more recent suppositions concerning the potential for comparative study owe something to this background. A closer look inevitably reveals a great variety of divergences between the two cases in question. This reality would, however, present a large problem only if one was attempting to reaffirm Richard Kelly's view of the matter. Faced with these complicated pasts, we can nonetheless seek out some common trends. For the early 17th century traveller finds Morrison, the most notable similarity between Bohemia and Ireland was the high level of alcohol consumption by women. Uh, It is not possible to extrapolate very much from that uh, observation. Uh, If we try to frame the areas of potential comparison, it may be helpful to view Bohemia after 1620 and Ireland after 1652 as conquest states in which the working out of similar processes can be identified. Following on from their military victories, both the Habsburgs and the Cromwellians moved to punish their opponents and to eradicate the sources of opposition. In Prague and in Dublin, one of the first steps undertaken was public executions. The punishments meted out to 27 Bohemian leaders in June 1621 were far more theatrical and symbolically charged than the execution of convicted murderers in Dublin and elsewhere in Ireland. The executions in Ireland were carried out in several stages, and by the time that the last round took place in June 1654, English interest had declined to the point where the London newspapers did not even bother to report on the event. While the Bohemian rebel leaders are commemorated prominently in Prague's Old Town Square, it might be hard to find someone in any square in Ireland who could tell you the names of more than one of those executed in the aftermath of the Cromwellian conquest. Another crucial way of punishing and eradicating opposition was by banishing people from the country. The estimate for the number of persons who fled Bohemia, particularly after the Habsburg ultimatum to convert to Catholicism or to leave, stands at 150,000. 
in Ireland. Expulsion involved the removal of tens of thousands of soldiers and indentured servants and many Catholic priests. More prominent in Ireland was internal migration in the form of transplantation, and the fact that Ireland was an island certainly militated against mass emigration by civilians. One of the byproducts of these expulsions were the writings produced by embittered exiles abroad, which have proven to be very useful sources for historians. One of the drivers of the emigration uh, that I just mentioned in both kingdoms was the confiscation of property. At the most basic levels, the, at the most basic level, the respective statistics for land ownership change in, change in Ireland and Bohemia are startling. Figures published by Josef Poloszewski show that 53% of the estates in Bohemia proper were confiscated by the Habsburgs. In both kingdoms, the reconfiguration of landed society helped to bring elite interests more into line with those of the ruler, thus contributing to processes of state formation. It also helped to shape the makeup of the elite societies which persisted in both kingdoms over the following centuries. Of course, as Peter Mata has pointed out, it was not just the redistribution of land which caused some families to prosper and others to disappear. The question of religion is perhaps more complicated. The intensity of the efforts made by the Habsburgs in the decades after 1620 to convert the population of Bohemia to Catholicism stands in marked contrast to, the, to English efforts at promoting Protestantism in Ireland at any stage during the early modern period. In Ireland, it was perhaps more tempting to write off the existing population as degenerate and barbaric and to advocate their replacement by new settlers rather than their conversion. This trend was accentuated by Protestant perceptions of the 1641 rebellion, and matters were certainly not helped by the absence of a single official state church in Ireland in the 1650s. The particular area that I want to briefly examine in this paper is the question of how the conquerors of, of Bohemia and Ireland were able to justify their military actions. In this respect, the position of Ferdinand II was more straightforward than that of the regicide regime in England. Amongst his other offices, Ferdinand was King of Bohemia from 1617 and Holy Roman Emperor from 1619, succeeding his uncle Matthias in both instances. In the former case, the Bohemian estates had recognised Ferdinand as their king on an almost unanimous basis. Moreover, the Habsburgs had ruled Bohemia since 1526, while their unbroken succession as emperors stretched back over two centuries. Thus, when the majority non-Catholic party of the estates went into rebellion in 1618 and then deposed Ferdinand in 1619, it made sense for him to adopt a legitimist stance. The estates argued that they had been coerced into electing Ferdinand in 1617 and that they were within their rights to dethrone him and to put somebody else in his place. Ferdinand's response to such claims was outlined most clearly in the manifest published by him in February 1620, in which he argued that he was the only lawful ruler of Bohemia. Ferdinand claimed in fairly conventional terms that the rebellion was deplorable, nothing other than, a, than seditious, rebellious and execrable treasons, a most bloody conspiracy. God, from whom all power was derived, had put the sword into Ferdinand's hand, and he was entitled to use it to punish rebellious malefactors whose actions threatened all Christian princes. Furthermore, the man recently elected by the Bohemian estates in his place, the Calvinist Frederick of the Palatinate, was, in Ferdinand's view, clearly an overambitious usurper. The estates, Ferdinand claimed, were also mistaken in their belief that Bohemia was an elective monarchy. Instead, he argued, over the past 270 years, the crown had passed from one king to another by lineal descent or by marriage. Moreover, 
precedence for his own election as king of Bohemia before the death of his successor could be traced back to the 14th century. While some of Ferdinand's arguments were certainly open to challenge from his opponents, their combined force must have been considerable. In his own eyes, he was a ruler anointed by God and endorsed by the Bohemian estates, whose oaths of loyalty to him could not now be simply discarded. The rebels could be de depicted as straightforwardly guilty of the crime of les majestes. That's how you pronounce it, I don't know. Uh, in November 1620, military victory at the Battle of the White Mountain enabled Ferdinand to exercise freely the powers claimed by him in his manifest some months before. If we turn to Ireland, three of the English justifications for the Cromwellian conquest hardly require further comment here. Uh, first of all, the need to avenge 1641. Second, the need to satisfy the adventurers who had invested in Irish land and thirdly, the need to eliminate the threat posed by Ormond's royalist alliance. Indeed, it is perhaps sometimes difficult to see past the issue of 1641. Nonetheless, it is worth examining, perhaps, the relevance in an Irish setting of arguments concerning legitimacy and from history, two aspects which were of importance to Ferdinand in Bohemia. Time constraints mean that it is necessary to be selective, but it may be useful to begin with John Temple's History of the Irish Rebellion, published in 1646. Temple rehearsed how, quote, the Kingdom of Ireland hath for almost 500 years continued under the sovereignty of the Crown of England, unquote. He also expressed some uncertainty concerning the origins of the pre-conquest inhabitants of Ireland. The latter point was not terribly important in any case, as the pre-12th century rulers were supposedly not proper kings. They neither used that title, nor came in, quote, by hereditary law or by hereditary right or lawful election, so that their investiture was solemnised neither by unction or coronation, unquote. These illegitimate rulers were in turn displaced by a rightful king, Henry II, who, quote, made good by the sword the Pope's donation, unquote. Temple might have strengthened his argument further, by referring to the 1541 Act of Kingly Title, under which Ireland was declared to be, quote, united and knit to the imperial crown of England. A phrase echoed by Ferdinand in 1620, when he claimed that Bohemia belonged, quote, to the, to the body of our imperial crown. Given, its, given his reliance on uh, Cambrensis and Spencer, there was nothing particularly novel in Temple's account. Its interest for our purposes lies rather in its timing. For the world that Temple described, where kingship was the best form of government and where conquest conferred a good title, was about to be turned upside down. By 1649, at least two, fa two factors had emerged to complicate the historically grounded constitutional relationship described by Temple. First, the abolition of the monarchy meant that English claims could no longer be justified by reference to the sovereignty of the crown over Ireland. Secondly, the increasingly popular notion that the end of monarchy constituted the throwing off of the Norman yoke imposed on England in the 11th century had apparent consequences for the argument that England could legitimately claim Ireland by right of conquest. Writing early in 1649, designated the first year of English freedom, John Milton was forced to confront these new realities. In his observations upon the Articles of Peace, Milton did not go so far as to question the legitimacy of the 12th century conquest although he claimed that it had been primarily a response to Irish piracy rather than the vindication of a right conferred by the Pope. While Milton, like Temple, 
highlighted the centuries-long English possession of Ireland, he laid stress on the rights of English settlers to their individual estates rather than on the crown's title to the entire kingdom. For Milton, Ireland owed loyalty not to the King of England but to the Commonwealth of England. The Articles of Peace were portrayed as an attempt by Charles to release Ireland from its due obedience, something which he had no right to do because, quote, the propriety remained ever to the kingdom, not to the king, unquote. For Milton, then, Charles was being portrayed as something of a tenant for life. The debate concerning the legitimacy of England's right to Ireland reached a peak in mid-1649 as opposition mounted in the English army to the planned invasion. With many men choosing to mutiny rather than to march, a document was circulated in the army which contained a number of queries concerning the Irish enterprise. These queries and the responses to them published in May 1649 by a radical London newspaper editor have received some, some attention in the context of scholarship on the leveller movement. A second and more extensive set of responses, penned by Thomas Waring and eventually published in 1651, has received less notice. In the 1640s, Waring had acted as clerk to the commissioners who had collected the 1641 depositions, and by the end of the decade he was in London producing propaganda on behalf of the English Parliament. Waring's answer to certain seditious and Jesuitical queries was the most detailed vindication of England's right to Ireland to be published in connection with the Cromwellian invasion. The writer of the queries had argued that Ireland belonged to the Irish and that despite centuries of subjection, they were entitled to throw off English rule and to decide their own destinies. Waring countered, citing classical authorities and Camden, by insisting that the first inhabitants of the island had been ancient Britons and that England's right was grounded securely in this circumstance. The Irish rebels did not represent an original and entire nation, but rather a mixture of peoples who owed their ultimate allegiance to England. Development since the 12th century had simply reinforced England's supposedly ancient rights. In referring to the relevant Henrician legislation, Waring made no mention of the Crown, instead simply noting that it had declared Ireland, quote, to be a member, appending and rightfully belonging to England, and united to the same, unquote. Waring also argued that most of the leading Irish landowners and rebels were in fact Old English. He illustrated this point with an alphabetical table of 264 Old English surnames, in which he highlighted those families belonging to the peerage. In the peerage itself, according to Waring's calculations, Old and New English outnumbered Old Irish 7 to 1, a factor which appeared further to confirm the essential Englishness of Ireland. Waring also discussed at length the legitimacy of wars of conquest, so as to counter the assertion put forward in the queries that, quote, the great conquerors of the world were none other than so many great and lawless thieves, unquote. He cited as the ultimate example Jesus' passive submission to Roman rule, quote, despite his indutable title and claim to the temporal kingdom of the Jews, unquote. If Christ could accept the rights bestowed by conquest, Irish rebels ought to do likewise. If Waring was altogether comfortable with the notion of conquest, there is some evidence that Oliver Cromwell was not. In his well-known Declaration for the Undeceiving of Deluded and Seduced Persons, published at Cork early in 1650, he refuted the, Catholics, the Catholic bishop's description of his invasion as a conquest. For Cromwell, this was rather a war of reunification or of liberation. He pointed out that Ireland was once united to England. Like Milton... Cromwell placed stress on Englishmen's ownership of Irish land, 
rather than on any crown title to the island by conquest. He even claimed that most of this English-owned land had been purchased in financial transactions, rather than granted by the crown. Towards the close of his declaration, Cromwell stated his case plainly. Quote, we, are, we come by the assistance of God to hold forth and maintain the luster and glory of English liberty in a nation where we have an undoubted right to do it. Unquote. If, following the execution of the king, that English right was open to some question, the strength of Cromwell's sword ensured that all dissent was soon silenced. Uh, what is clear from the examples that I have discussed very briefly here is that history was too powerful a weapon to be left uncontested in the hands of one's enemies. For Ferdinand II, as for Oliver Cromwell, the legitimacy of their claims and actions were bound up with their representations of the past. If Ferdinand could put forward a consistent argument in defence of his claim to be Bohemia's sole lawful ruler, the upheavals in 1640s England complicated the Irish question. The act of regicide necessitated the, re the reformulation of England's claim to Ireland, and the ways in which Milton, Waring and others attempted to fulfil this need is worthy of greater attention. The imperial claims of a divinely appointed monarch by right of conquest were laid, inside, laid aside in favour of a schema in which it was the long-standing proprietary rights of English landowners, perhaps even old Catholic ones, which were seen as binding Ireland most securely to England. While the legitimacy of England's claims continued to be derived in part from the past, that legitimacy now appeared to come rather more from below than from above. Such an outcome was very much in keeping with the reality that a land once seen as knit to an English crown was now being held in an even tighter grip by an English parliament. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHope.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHope.ie website.